So our reading this morning has two stories in it, one of Jesus in synagogue on Sabbath, as he would have done, and the other is the sending of the 12. And I want to help us see this morning the sending that is implied in calling. Put it differently, that within calling is something like a seed of sending, uh, it's a, they, they come together. These, we, we, we wouldn't necessarily think of that. We think of you know, calling to Jesus and sending as being something very different. But I think we can see this morning that these things actually work together. And I think probably that passages like this uh, challenge a church like us that's focused on formation. And I think that's okay. And there's probably some in the room who are saying, finally, Hunter's going to talk about something other than formation. I get it. But I think this is a peaceable challenge, or at least can and should be to us a peaceable challenge. As you know, my strong bias is that anything that can be done being harshly focused or harshly forced can be done better through the practices of the kingdom, through what Paul called the fruits of the Spirit, through love and peace and and joy and kindness. So to get us rolling in this thought this morning, I want to just kind of try this on for size to just help us get into this connection between calling and sending. And that is, I don't think we have to choose between two caricatures. I don't think we have to choose between an anxious activism and what other people might call, you know, sort of a navel-gazing, you know, sort of inner work. I think that's a false choice. And I've already said it differently, that calling to Christ implies sending. There, and I'll, I, ho- I hope I can demonstrate that to you this morning, that these things go together Because I know that lots of us come out of, you know, high anxious, driven, type A sort of environments in churches that are just, you know, climb this next hill, do this next thing, you know, just constantly, like literally using anxiousness, like producing anxiousness as a way of like motivating people. And I know that there's a lot of people sitting here that are going, you know, been there, done that, got the t-shirt or got the therapy bills, whatever to, you know, to prove it. But I don't think we have to choose between that and what somebody might stereotype as navel-gazing. Again, I think those are caricatures that make some certain sense based on some of our histories, but they're not very subtle, right? They're not very very sophisticated. They're, They're caricatures of something. So I think there's available to us a God-ordained, grace-based journey inward and journey outward that go together peacefully, like pedals on a bike. One time when I was on the, the board of um, Richard Foster's Renovari, we put some sort of working group together, but I can't remember why. It was a long time ago, 15, 20 years ago. But I know we were trying to come up with these definitions for some publication. And so one of the definitions that we came up with trying to express this, uh, we wrote, as we're formed into the likeness of Christ, there's formation, we increasingly share God's infinitely tender love for others. We deepen in our compassion for the poor, the broken, and the lost. As we're formed in Christ, we ache and pray and labor for others in a new way, a selfless way, a joy-filled way. Our hearts are enlarged towards all people and towards all of creation. So that's the mental model I want to suggest to you now as we get into the text and and get into our story. If, If you look at your bulletin, our story begins, as I said, it's Sabbath, Jesus is in his uh, hometown. His disciples are following him. And for Mark, that word would have been a a clue that his disciples were following him. 
Uh, so, you know, try to keep hold that in your mind as we, as we read this. And so he, maybe picture him walking into the synagogue, his disciples behind him, and he's teaching. That is to say, he's doing what I'm doing right now. He's commenting on the morning's reading from the scroll. So I know not all of you are, are uh, you know, uh, lifelong Anglicans, but if you've ever wondered why do we read Scripture publicly and then someone comment on it, it's because it's been happening since synagogue. It's been happening since before church. Uh, it's been happening for thousands and thousands of years where they've done something, where the church has done something like this in their worship. Well, the people are astonished. And I suppose that's where the breakdown is. I mean, none of you have ever said you're astonished by my teaching. And, and we don't have a scroll, you know, we... We, we have Kirsten with our lovely book that Beth procured for it with all of its beautiful art. But something like this is happening, and they're astonished. And I think if you, if you think about their objection to who is this guy, and don't we know his family, what's happening here I can really relate to. Because I've given a first sermon that my family heard for the first time. And they do go, who is that guy? You know, like I picture my little brother and little sister going, well, he used to beat the crud out of me in the backyard, and now he's standing up there all holy, you know, uh, right? Or I remember the first time my mom came to a sermon, and I said something about my testimony that probably had to do with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and afterwards she said, did you really do that stuff? And I'm like, oh, sorry, mom, you know. So I sort of get what's happening here. I mean, Jesus really has been a nobody. Now he stands up with this incredible, Incredible authority, and they're going, what is this? They're, they're, they really are like blown away by it, and they start thinking immediately, like kind of, don't we know this guy? But it's not quite as benign as what I'm saying here, because that veil that was created by kind of familiarity or Jesus's ordinariness became to them, unfortunately, a stumbling block. So when you look at your text and it says, where does this man get these things? It doesn't come across to us in English, but in Greek, that's full of contempt. It's like, who is this guy? You know, you have to see a sort of this going on. Uh, and we, it's hard to get that in an English translation. But it's like, well, who is this guy? Like, we know his parents and siblings. Like, this isn't DNA. I think, I think that Eugene helps us really get this in the message when he says, you know, who does this guy think he is? and that they tripped over the little they knew about Jesus and fell sprawling, and they never got any further. So they, they tripped over his ordinariness. They, in other words, somewhere their heart couldn't take in what he was saying and doing. Rather, it, it tripped over his ordinariness. So then you'll see your text says that Jesus was not able to do much except for heal a few sick people, and that he marveled at their stubborn unbelief. And again, the, the Greek text helps us see that there's a stubbornness to this unbelief. And I think here we learn something in our own cooperation with God and his kingdom. And that is that a lack of faith interrupts the flow of the kingdom somehow. It kind of short circuits something. But to be theologically precise, I'd want to say, but our sort of mal reactions to Jesus, our mal reactions to God, our kind of wrongheaded reactions to God, they don't in any way impinge on his omnipotence. Are you with me? So this doesn't mean like Jesus couldn't do anything, like somehow their unbelief changed who he was essentially as God. It just means that God in his wisdom has created a partnership with us. And somehow our confidence in that partnership, both generally and specifically, 
that somehow like releases the kingdom. It releases the reign of God in our midst. And that working against that somehow hinders it. This is what I, I think we get from this. So then the next, the, the story shifts here. When in verse 7, I think it is, the, the, it shifts to tell us that Jesus is now going about the village's teaching. So, you know, just picturing kind of a wandering prophet evangelist teacher. And he calls the 12 to them and begins to send them out two by two. So now you hear in Jesus' own mouth what I started kind of saying before you try this on for size. That in the same breath that he calls the 12 to himself, he sends them out two by two. And I just want you to feel that rhythm. And to hear in this what I've said to you before, but I don't expect you to be so astonished at what I say that you remember everything I say. But you, what we have here really is the doctrine of election. Now, sorry to talk about doctrine on a Sunday morning, but it's actually important. Just this one phrase I, I would encourage you to hold in your head, that biblically speaking, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to John the Baptist, to the church. Fundamental to election is this. The few are called for the sake of the many. Or the one is called Abraham for the sake of the many. You 12, you, you are called but for the sake of the many. That is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is not primarily about special privilege. The doctrine of election is primarily about special responsibility in the world as God's people. So now, just again, just think of what we've done so far over this first uh, part of the summer and think back with me to Mark 1, where Jesus calls the 12, saying to me, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He basically invites them to come be his apprentices. And he's been giving them private instruction and kind of the opportunity to see the, the master at work close up, right? So like picture a master artist or something and, and having the privilege of literally being able to sort of look over their shoulder, but also get a peek into their mind of, well, why are you holding the brush this way? Or why do you touch the pottery in that way? So it's this combination of getting to watch the master up close and to hear him explicate, to explain why he does what he does and how he does what he does. So they're seeing this up close. And now they're being commissioned as ambassadors of the kingdom to go out and carry on his work, to tell others that the kingdom of God has come near, to repent and to believe. And we might say to alert people to the reign of God. Now there's way, this like I could do a weekend seminar on this, but I'm telling you there is just something, there's, it, this isn't just profound because it's true and Jesus said it, but I believe in 2018 and 2019 this is more true than ever that our lives alert people to the reign of God. Because just think how that just sidetracks so much of people's crud with church, people's crud with religion, people's crud with denominations. Like, like if we could broaden this to God's alive on the earth, you know, that can, that can then bring in all everything people care about. It can bring in creation. It can bring in human rights and refugees. It can bring in racism. It can bring in gender issues. It can bring in the whole thing. But when that's not the frame, when we let present issues become the frame and then try to get the Bible to speak into something that's already framed, that causes what you now see in the comment sections on social media. We need a new frame Right now, we keep trying to have the conversation on sort of our culture's terms. 
And it just, it doesn't work. It's not going to work. We've got decades of seeing it now. I think it's time to call it and call it for what it is and say, let's see if we can work ourselves to a new frame. And I would say, this is it. And I think this is super important for us as a, as a, like a formationally focused church to think about how the reign of God can and should inform our perspective on mission. Because if you look at the New Testament, and I've done this for you so you don't have to do it, you will find that the verbs like build or extend are never found in the New Testament with reference to God's kingdom. You are actually not called to extend God's kingdom. And you and I aren't called to build it. How could you? The kingdom is the expression of God's self. How do you build that? Are you feeling me here? See, we've made the kingdom into a thing, or at worst, like Star Wars, the force, you know? And it's not. It's the, 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 the ruling and reigning of God is the expression of his own being. Can you see how we can't add to that? We don't extend that. We don't build that. We don't bring it about or establish it. And a part of what so many of you have reacted to and responded to and, and why our heart has gone out to you here at Holy Trinity is that when we end up thinking that way, then the kingdom can seem like a social project that ought to be designed by architects and engineers, right? It's like, you know, any of us who liked erector sets or, you know, those little log things or what's the new things now, the little plastic things, that Legos, you know, like when the kingdom, thank you. So, you know, we, we tend to think of it as something, at least I'll speak for myself, being a sort of perfectionist fixer, like I would want to pick it up and fix it. But see, if you personalize it, you can't do that. It's when we make the kingdom utilitarian that it becomes something then we feel like we can sort of pick up and fix. So the church doesn't spread the kingdom, the church doesn't grow it, the church doesn't expand it. And again, when we treat it that way, it can so often become like a sales project you know, complete with like a CEO and a sales staff. And that's not it. The, the thing we want to carry around would be more like a, a highly personal sense of being instrument and means of God. But again, not utilitarian. Very personalized version of that. So on the other hand, the New Testament verbs regarding the kingdom are to receive. If you want to know what you do, according to the New Testament with the kingdom, you receive it as a gift. You enter it. It's a realm that you enter. And then seeing it this way works against our instincts to achieve or enlarge and works towards a humble but joy-filled submission in the manner of Jesus. Right? Jesus was constantly submitting to his Father. Now, again, I want you to, I want you to actually think about this with me for a second. So hear what I just said. Jesus was very consciously and consistently submitting to his Father. Got it? Do you think of him as uptight and religious? Of course not. So what does that alert us to? There's a way of being consciously, consistently submitted to, his, to God and his kingdom that does not have to lead to uptight religiousness. It can lead to a highly generous life, a very gracious life, a generative life. This is what people saw of Jesus in public. So you see how his submission to the rule and reign of God became something that was good for the other. And unfortunately, again, I just know that what many of us have experienced is that people get uptight and they get unkind, right? And they get religious and judgmental. Well, again, don't think that that's a character that we've only got these two choices. There's another way of doing this. 
And I think it, it, it calls in us a, a lifestyle of repentance, a, a turning away from other hopes and loyalties. Because I just don't think it's possible for the church to be faithful to the kingdom while looking to the wider culture to get our sense of identity and the way to measure our success. Rather, I think, quite obviously, we have to get our identity from God's like not yet completed covenantal story. Adam and Eve, come rule and reign with me. Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and we're gonna fix the world. We're gonna restore the world through you. Oops, right? Lots of ups and downs in Israel's history to John the Baptist, to Jesus comes on the scene saying, the great oops of Israel is now fixed. And this is the beginning of the end. And what God promised to Abraham is gonna happen through now the reconstituted Jew plus Gentile people of God. And they are going to fulfill what was promised. So it's that that we're trying to live into. Now, so, so hold that in your head for a second. And now hear the apostle Paul say to you, you are God's handiwork. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Advance from where? I'd suggest Adam and Eve. That God has always wanted a cooperative friends. That this is what he's always intended for humanity. And so when we begin to see things this way, then daily life becomes for us a formational discipline of asking God how we can move more exactly into his realm how we can better welcome in the kingdom and receive the kingdom into the very fabric of our lives and that in doing so, the people around us, our family and friends, would experience our formation in the kingdom as for their good. That's the essential vision. And Jesus, of course, is the example of mission centered on the kingdom of God. This is what he modeled for the 12. He modeled living under the authority of the kingdom as a willing subject of his father's reign. He trusted and was loyal to his father. So now having modeled that for them, he sends them out on this journey and he commands them what to take on the journey, on the journey, what attitudes to have, how to behave, etc. And essentially he gives them sort of a minimalist way of doing it. Like as you go out, go out in this sort of minimalist way. And I think Eugene's helpful in the message. You don't, don't think you need a lot of extra equipment for this. I love this sentence. You are the equipment. So don't, don't think you need to bring a bunch of stuff because this is essentially personal. So just keep it simple, get a modest place, be content there until you leave. Now, here's a formational moment for you, a missional formational moment. I think the ESV says Jesus commanded them. And I don't remember what the NIV says, but he commanded them. He gave them orders. Can he do that to you? I mean, I think what I, I can just say over my 40 years of being a pastor that I think I've seen the pendulum swing away from sort of a conceptually, uh, theologically, doctrinaire, distant God who, who the church light, rightly rejected. And then, I'm, again, I'm caricaturing, and I know that. And then, the, and I want, so I want you to know it. And so then the pen, pendulum swings to the other side to Jesus is my buddy. And Jesus loves me, and I'm okay just the way I am and all that. Can Jesus command you? Is your heart open to that? Can he tell you what to do? Could he tell you where to go? Could he tell you what to take on a journey? Would that be okay with you? Or would that seem bossy? 
Like, I'm, I mean, I, I'm really serious here. This is a very important thing. And look at me, here's why it's important. Because if Jesus doesn't have the kind of authority that's suitable to helping you plod along on this earth, that means you don't have the authority to cast out demons or heal the sick. Every single one of you in this room want to be an agent for healing on this earth. I know it. But you won't have the power. The power to do that is the power that's resident in Jesus, and it's from that power and that wisdom that he tells them, here's what to do. Well, why does he do that? To be bossy? No, first of all, he's training them. But second of all, what's most important is it's that self-same authority that's core to you being a healing agent on the earth. Are you feeling me here? It's, it's the same authority. It's the same source. It's the same flow. And so receiving it, like Jesus did from his father, I only do the things I see my father doing. I only say the things I hear him saying. Can you hear his submission? So now that same submission has, is being, was modeled for and is now being asked of the 12. And this is a deeply formational moment. This is not, in my view, primarily a missional moment. This is primarily a formational moment. Do I invite the rule and reign of God into my life such that then I can be a conduit for that very same power? So then the 12 go out, you know, they're, they're, they, they do what Jesus said. They're proclaiming that people should repent. They cast out demons. They heal the sick. And what you see happening here is a kind of mimicking in the good sense of mimicking. You know, they saw Jesus going around. Now they're out going around. You know, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Now they're out teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus cast out demons and healed the sick, and now they're doing the same. And as I was preparing for this, I had a thought that I, it's a little story I, I've never shared with you. But, you know, the Vineyard Anaheim started by John Wimber when he was, you know, this sort of world-famous renewalist in the late 70s and into the 90s. You know, the, the Vineyard Anaheim was a, literally an internationally acclaimed church. We had people visit from all over the world, blah, blah, blah. Well, this man who lived in Chatsworth, so even on the best of days, an hour and a half from Anaheim, right? Used to occasionally come to church with his wife, Jane. It was Dallas Willard. Would sort of as often as he could, would come visit the Vineyard Anaheim. And I remember one day asking him, Dallas, why do you do this? And he said, Todd, because I see in John something I see in almost no one else. And that is somebody trying to take serious the rule and reign of God's kingdom. Now, now Dallas, you know, especially in the divine conspiracy, he he sort of turned that kingdom focus because it was his gift and calling onto formation. He saw John doing the sending part. You know, John used to take all over the world people who are teenagers. And Debbie and I, when we travel now around the world, we meet people all the time who are like our age who say to me, you know, back in the 70s or 80s or whatever, you know, John came to town and this 19-year-old kid laid hands on me and prayed for me and we couldn't have babies and we had a baby. Well, I mean, I, we hear these stories all the time of teenage kids laying their hands on sick people and sick people getting well and stuff. Well, Dallas saw that going on and in his mind, he merged what I want to merge for you this morning. We don't have to live in the false dualism of the caricatures. We don't have to pick anxious, anxiety-driven activism or navel-gazing introspection. These things are made in the image of God to go together. That is the doctrine of election. We are called, we have a specific calling for the good of others. All right, so last thing. So then what are we meant to experience as, you know, we're human beings. What are we meant to experience 
as we respond to this double movement to both come to Jesus and to be sent by him to work for healing and wholeness, to travel this life modestly and lightly in the world, realizing our interdependence. You know, I don't have time to talk about it, but that's the two by two. You know, realizing our interdependence with each other and then, of course, our utter dependence on God. So here's the imagination I'd want you to have as, as we uh, move on in our worship this morning. This is the imagination I, I suggest to you for how it can feel to live into both our calling and our sending. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That's what it'll be like. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Like I'm not going to do anything bad to you. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, that yoke of my, my submission to the Father, that yoke that I'm now trying to put on the 12 and 2,000 years down the road to us, that yoke is easy and that burden is light. It's living outside of the rule and reign of God that is death and destruction and hardship. It's the narrow path that's, diff- that's uh, sorry, it's the broad path that's difficult. It's not this narrow path of submission. That narrow path of submission is easy and that burden is light compared to the human brokenness of living outside of that. So that's the come part. Come unto me, all you labor and who are heavy laden. And then the go part, John 20. You know, Jesus has been raised from the dead, not yet finally ascended to the Father. He's with his disciples. He peers among them and says, peace. As the Father have sent me, right, we've rehearsed that, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what animates a life that is both called and sinned? Receive the Holy Spirit. What keeps it on track? Receive the Holy Spirit. What happens when we're rejected in the little villages we're sent to? Receive the Holy Spirit. What happens when Peter can't get along with Paul? Receive the Holy Spirit. What happens when Stephen gets stoned in it, in it, to death and it, it breaks our sense of, I wait a minute, I thought the kingdom was coming. How did Stephen die like that? Receive the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes, he'll teach you and lead you and guide you. He will be to you what I've been. You can apprentice yourself to my ongoing spirit. 